Good morning, River West Church family. I heard many of you give a resounding applause when Colin pointed out that this is the last official Sunday of 2020, which makes me think that many of you tuning in at home or those of you here today worshiping with us are ready to say good riddance to 2020 and usher in 2021. Can I get an amen? Amen. I can honestly say from the depth of my heart that all I wanted for Christmas this year was a COVID vaccine. (laughs) I'm joking. Unless you actually have a hookup with Pfizer, and that, in that case, you can actually email me, chris at riverwest.org, and we can talk. Seriously, I just miss the good old days, don't you, when we could all actually not awkwardly wave at one another from a safe distance like junior hires at a school dance when I could recognize my neighbors without playing the who's behind the mask game, don't you? This past week, my wife Jules and I, we celebrated our 19th anniversary together in true pandemic fashion by ordering takeout in our pajamas and watching Christmas romance movies. I can feel the judgment welling up in the room Right now. Now, typically this time of year, you need to know that I have a standing agreement with my bride, Julie, that we can watch whatever she wants during our anniversary week, which typically involves a plethora of Christmas rom-coms. So after 19 years of marriage together, I think I've seen most, if not all, of these films. And I have to be honest with you, most of them are really, really, really bad. (laughs) And part of what makes them so bad is they recycle the same basic plot structure in every film. You didn't ask me to do this, but I went ahead and made a diagram of the narrative plot structure of a Christmas romance movie. I think we could show it right here. This is how every single Christmas romance movie goes. It starts off, the setup, the opening scene involves a protagonist that seems to have everything going for them. They're rich, they're successful. The only thing is, is they're missing the one thing that truly matters in life. And what's that? Love. They're missing love. And so as the plot unfolds, we come actually to the pinnacle moment in the movie. It's the climatic decision moment in the movie where the protagonist must choose whether they're willing to risk everything to get the one thing that's missing from their life or miss out on love. And then typically these Hallmark movies, they end with like snowfall and subtle kissing. It's PG-13, you know, or PG or G, but it is a happily ever after ending. Now, if you're sitting there, you're at home, like sipping hot chocolate going, why in the world are you talking about Christmas rom-coms? One, I know a lot about them, but two, as we're going to see, actually, there's a connection to the story that we're going to open in Luke's gospel this morning that involves a wealthy young ruler on a quest to find the one thing that is missing from his life. 
who comes to Jesus and faces a climatic decision moment that will impact and determine the trajectory of his life and even his eternal happiness. However, unlike most cookie-cutter holiday romance movies, this man's quest actually leads to one of the most startling, shocking encounters that the gospel writers ever recorded. And so with that, if you're ready, open up Luke's gospel as we continue our series. Turn to chapter 18 as we look together at the classic story of the rich young ruler. We're going to start this morning in verse 18 where we left off. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word. In the aftermath of Christmas and COVID and a year that is honestly, if we can be truthful, felt like one big lump of coal in the stocking of so many of our lives, I am so grateful that we're ending the year and wrapping up 2020 by opening up this encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler. I've wanted to preach on this passage for years and have never had the opportunity to actually open up this incredible story. And while there's certainly aspects of this story that are meant to be a sobering warning and to shock us as followers of Jesus, because we're going to see that Jesus and his disciples are shocked by this encounter, There's an electricity and an intensity to this exchange. 
we'll never fully appreciate the startling truths in this encounter until you realize that this is actually a love story. The story that we read is actually a love story. And the reason I say that is because in Mark's account of the same encounter that's recorded in all the synoptics, Mark points out that when Jesus looked at this rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, look at what it says. It says, Jesus looking at him, this rich young ruler loved him. He loved him. And then he said to him these words that we read. Now, granted, this story between Jesus and the rich young ruler, it's not the sort of love story that we're accustomed to streaming on Netflix. However, I would argue and venture to say this is the love story that we need right now in our cultural moment. So many people are feeling a loneliness and emptiness in their life. This is the love story that we need. So if you're taking notes at home or here this morning, there's three elements that govern this story that we're going to unpack together. Three elements. A quest for something more, which leads to a climatic decision moment and a surprising ending. A quest, climatic decision, and an ending that nobody sees coming. First thing first, this man approaches Jesus because he's on a quest to discover something that's missing from his life. We see this right in verse 18. As it opens up, it says, A ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The word that he uses for life there is the word zoe. It it means the life that only belongs to God. The life that only God can give. But we have to see that this man, this quest and this question, underneath the surface of his life, there's an ache, there's a longing. But on the surface and by outward appearances, this guy's life seems to be going really well. I mean, of all the people that Jesus has interacted with so far in Luke's gospel, this guy's life seems to be pretty put together. I mean, we see uh, Matthew tells us that he's young. He's young. He's the rich young ruler. He's wealthy. In Luke's account, in verse 23, Luke tells us that he was extremely rich, extremely wealthy. He's also powerful. Luke identifies this man as a ruler, and the Greek term that he uses generally refer to somebody who was a member of the aristocracy of the time or a magistrate of some sort. It's used of various Jewish leaders, including those in charge of a synagogue or members of the Sanhedrin, rulers of the Sanhedrin, which makes sense actually in the context of this exchange, because as we're going to see, on top of being wealthy, young, successful, and powerful, this man is actually extremely religious and moral as well. He's a pious Jew who actually knows his Torah, his Old Testament, and seems sincerely devoted to keeping God's commands. And yet, as the story unfolds, 
we'll see that underneath the surface of this man's wealth and his religious upbringing and success, he's haunted by this deep, aching reminder that something is missing from his life. You know, as I was studying this passage this week, it reminded me of an interview that 60 Minutes conducted with Tom Brady back in 2005, right after Tom Brady had won his 90th Super Bowl victory, actually his third Super Bowl victory. During that interview, Brady said this, and I want you to listen to these words that Tom Brady telling the interviewer this. He says, there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, this is what is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? The interviewer asked, what's the answer? And Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Which makes me, as a pastor, just want to scream, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. Here's Tom Brady, arguably the NFL's greatest quarterback of all time. I know that's going to elicit a lot of conflict, but he's really good with six Super Bowl championships under his belt, a marriage to a supermodel. And yet this guy is left wondering, there's got to be more to life than this. In many respects, the rich young ruler was the Tom Brady of his day. He's rich. He's powerful. He's successful. He's envied by his neighbors. Yet deep down, he knows that something's lacking, that something is missing. So one day, as he hears Jesus Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God that has come, he runs up to Jesus, kneels down, Mark tells us, and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And underneath this seemingly pious question, there's an assumption. There's a theological assumption that the cure to his spiritual emptiness can actually be found by just doing more and achieving more. In fact, notice his question. He doesn't ask, good teacher, what must I believe? He says, good teacher, what must I do? But instead of starting with a list of commands that this man can obey, obey, first Jesus responds by telling the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? Why do you use that word? He wants to take this conversation and probe deeper into what this man believes about the Lord. He says, why do you call me good? You know, I know, no one is good except God alone. Like so many people in Jesus' day and our own, this man came to Jesus 
with a moral checklist in hand, wondering if he's good enough or if he's done enough to warrant God's forgiveness and to inherit the kingdom. You see, deep down, this rich young ruler is actually cut from the same cloth as the religious leaders that Jesus encountered back in verse 9 of this same chapter. Look at what verse 9 says. Luke tells us in verse 9, when Jesus told this parable, this story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector that we studied a couple weeks ago, it said that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in their own righteousness. And Luke is connecting this story to that theme of placing our trust in our own righteousness. And we see this attitude, this trust in our own his own morality come out and rise to the surface in verse 20 when Jesus actually tells the rich young ruler, now you know, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And without hesitation, the rich young ruler quips back all of these, I have kept from my youth. Check, check. No adultery, no lying, no murder, no stealing, not bearing false witness. Check, check, check. And surprisingly, this took me off guard this week. I'd never noticed this aspect of the story. Jesus actually does not rebuke this man or say, you hypocrite. No, you haven't. You haven't kept these, these commands whatsoever. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say those things. Now, if this man were living a blatantly immoral life or a duplicitous life, like so many of the religious leaders that Jesus actually calls out in Luke's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, we would see Jesus do that in this story, but he doesn't. Because the rich young ruler wasn't a dishonest, lying, cheating kind of guy. In fact, from everything that we can gather about this man, this was a really good guy, an incredibly moral guy, an incredibly honest man. But when all is said and done, the reason that the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus isn't simply because of his exceeding wealth. It's also because he was clinging to his own righteousness in hopes of earning a place in the kingdom of God. Unaware deep down of what Luke recorded that Jesus had said back in chapter 5, when Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, folks, the gospel, as we say around here, it's only good news for people who accept the bad news 
that no one is good but God alone. And until you wake up one day and realize that your soul is sick with something that no amount of religion or wealth, success can cure, you'll never experience the profound joy and contentment that Christ, the great physician, came to offer to sinners. Amen? No matter how moral or successful you are, you are, you'll always be like Tom Brady and you'll have a gnawing sadness within that incessantly aches for something more. Jesus saw this ache in the eyes of the rich young ruler and moved with compassion for this man. The gospel writer Mark tells us that Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to this man, You lack one thing. You can almost feel the rich young ruler hold his breath and sit at the edge of his seat in this story. As Jesus tells him, here's the one thing that's missing from your life. And it's only one thing, one thing that's lacking. And it brings us to the climatic decision moment in this story, this man's quest has led to this moment right now where everything's going to hinge on what Jesus says next. Where this wealthy man must decide whether or not he's willing to surrender everything he has in order to find the one thing that's lacking from his life. And it's right in verse 22 of the account that we read. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, this is the one thing you want, one thing you lack. Sell what you have and distribute to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now keep in mind, Jesus didn't see, say these words smugly or with a condescending tone. He said these, this thing to this rich young ruler out of an overflow of love. For this man. And because Jesus loves this man, he must expose the true condition of his heart. And the way that Jesus does this in the encounter is so subversive, it's brilliant. I bet you missed it. It's easy to overlook. Back in verse 20, when Jesus rattles off a list of commandments from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, did you notice which ones he left out? Jesus quotes commandments 5 to 10 when he says, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Commandments 5 to 10 deal with loving our neighbors, with loving our neighbors. But commandments one to four deal with loving God first. And Jesus intentionally omits those commandments when he addresses the man, including the first and most important commandment of all that all the other commandments rest upon. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. 
You see, in the end, the rich young ruler's problem wasn't his wealth or his status. It's that he allowed these things to become the functional God and idol that he worshiped and trusted for his security and satisfaction and sense of life. They were his affirmation. And so Jesus says, if you call me good, and only God is good, obey this command. Go, sell everything that you have. Give it to those in need, in the community. Then come follow me. Make me your treasure. Let my love, my words be your righteousness, your wealth. Then you'll have the zoe, the life that you've always ached for in this age and in the next to come, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. But when he heard these things, Luke tells us in verse 23 that the rich young ruler, when he heard this invitation from Jesus to go sell all that he had, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Now, before we misconstrue this account to be some sort of blanket condemnation towards folks who are wealthy, you need to remember and bear in mind that Luke's gospel actually contains many stories of people of considerable wealth who go on to become faithful holy devoted followers of Christ, like Levi, the tax collector, like Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, Zacchaeus. We're going to see the account of Zacchaeus, the wee little rich man that comes to faith in Jesus. Jesus tells him salvation has come to your house. But how about this? Remember, oh, mighty, excellent Theophilus that this letter was addressed to? He was likely a Roman ruler, a magistrate of some sort that funded Luke's journey so that he could go out and record and pass on these words to us. And even Luke himself was incredibly well off as a physician and doctor. So you need to hear this. Luke was not a poor man writing to poor people that together they might denounce the rich. It's much closer to the truth to say that Luke was a rich man writing to other rich people in order to show us what it looks like to trust and treasure Jesus Christ above all other trinkets that this world offers. Tim Keller makes the point that when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve and went away sad because money was for him what the father was to Jesus. It was the center of the rich young ruler's identity. So to love his money and to leave it behind would have been to lose himself. But friends, that's exactly what Jesus has been calling us to do over and over again, page after page in the gospel of Luke. Back in chapter nine, Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will 
save it. We'll find it. Sadly, the rich young ruler wanted life abundant, but was unwilling to part with his abundance. So he walked away from Jesus, weeping because he couldn't bear the thought of letting go of the things that he treasured and clung dearly to for life. Which finally, friends, brings us to the surprising conclusion of this story. Jesus, seeing this man walk away from him with an empty heart and the same ache that he came, that prompted him to seek out Jesus. Jesus himself is moved and grieved. Out of love for this man, I imagine, with tears welling up in his eyes, he turns to his disciples as the man walks away. And in verse 24, he says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is not the Hallmark happy ending that we're typically accustomed to seeing, but we see Jesus with a grieving heart out of love for this man lamenting. These words come from a broken heart of our Savior. There's tension in this story, that it's meant to sit with us at, as the readers to be shocked by this encounter. Now, maybe you've heard preachers speculate here and try to dismiss that tension by saying that when Jesus is referring to the eye of a needle, he was referring to a gate that would allow people access into, into the temple at Jerusalem. I heard many, many sermons before and people speculating that a camel could fit through this gate if it just squeezed through but barely fit through the gate that would allow somebody access into the temple court. The only problem with this is that it is entirely false and it's based on a myth. None of that is true whatsoever. So if you've ever heard that before, it actually moves us further and further away from the meaning of this entire story. You see, Jesus' hyperbole and his image here of a camel, which was the largest animal in Israel at the time, and, and an eye of a needle, which was the smallest opening, Jesus is saying to us, you know what's absolutely impossible and ridiculous? A big camel fitting through the eye of a needle. But you want to know what's even more impossible? Someone getting into heaven. Someone getting into heaven. You see, friends, in the end, we are all unrighteous camels trying to fit through the narrow holiness that God requires. No matter how hard we try to live up to God's righteous standards, there is no one good except God alone. And if this encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler and Christ's words, they rattle you, that's actually a good thing. It should. 
And it certainly did for Jesus' disciples. In fact, you can tell how flabbergasted Jesus' disciples are when they exclaim, then who can be saved? In verse 26, if a pious, moral guy like this can't enter the kingdom, then who can? I mean, even the apostle Peter is rattled to the point that he, he seeks out some affirmation from Jesus. Like Jesus, we've left behind homes. Are we in? Are we included in your kingdom? We're good, right? You could see even Peter is rattled by this encounter. But it all leads to this grace-filled statement that Christ makes. That's the pinnacle of the whole story. It's the point of the whole story. It's in verse 27, when Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's the impossibility of salvation that's at the heart of the gospel. You see, friends, this is what Christ has been doing as he's telling us salvation is not something that we can earn, that we can merit, that we can achieve. No matter how hard we strive for, it's impossible. Until you understand this, your life will never, ever be an overflow of joy and contentment. Friends, Christianity is not hard. It's impossible. We're never meant to save and change ourselves. Until you understand the impossibility of the kingdom, you'll never experience an abandon and a surrender where you see, Jesus, I am all yours. I'm all yours. Everything I have, Lord. You'll never be able to sing those hymns with joy in your heart. I surrender all. You won't be able to do it. In C.S. Lewis's classic Narnia tale, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, my favorite scene in that book involves the character Eustace. It's the character that's easiest to hate. We all hate Eustace. We don't like Eustace at all. He's super annoying. Children in the story, they don't like Eustace whatsoever. He's entitled. He's rich. He expects everything on a silver platter. He's just, he annoys me. One day, Eustace, he wanders off alone. He finds this huge pile of treasure in an abandoned dragon's cave. You remember this scene in the story? He stuffs his pockets with as much of the dragon's treasure as he can carry, puts a bracelet on, falls asleep in the cave. And, and Lewis tells us that his heart was filled with dragonish thoughts. And when he awoke, to his surprise and his shock, Eustace had become a dragon. In terror, he frantically tries to scratch and peel his skin off, but the harder he tries... The skin always grows back. So finally, he gives up hope and passes his days away in isolation, weeping bitterly on top of a pile of treasure, wishing he was a boy. Then Aslan the lion, the Jesus figure, the Christ figure in the story, shows up one day and asks Eustace, Eustace to follow him down to a well. 
As they make their way down to the water, Aslan says, Eustace, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace was afraid, but when he saw that his task was impossible by his own hands, Lewis writes these words. I was afraid of his claws, but I was, I was pretty desperate now. So as I lay flat down on my back, I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt, hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done it myself three other times, only they hadn't hurt, there it was lying there on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been. And there I was as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had ever been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that that much, for I was very tender underneath now, and I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It hurt like anything, but only for a moment, and after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. My friends, the rich young ruler was a Eustace, and so are you and I. Only Christ can peel away the layers of treasures that we cling to so tightly in this life and truly give us the life that we've always longed for. So as we land our time together this morning, I just want to impart to you some ways that you can respond and welcome Christ's love into your life life and grow in faith. Because I believe deep down, we're all rich young rulers. We're all like Eustace. We need Christ to tear away the treasures that we cling to so tightly. So here's some practical ways, friends, that you can exercise faith and love in Christ. And the first thing that you can do is you can give. You can give. I believe the words of Paul the Apostle when he wrote this to rich believers, he told Timothy to pass on these words, and I believe they're for us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Isn't that good? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. My friends, we don't talk about money much at River West. Can I tell you something? In order to grow in faith, you want to increase your faith one of the most practical ways that you can do that is to actually regularly exercise giving and tithing. When we do that, it writes our relationship with our wealth. And like Paul tells us, we realize that all blessings come 
as a gracious gift from a generous God who wants us to enjoy them but not be mastered by them like this rich young ruler. And so as you're praying and considering what can you actually give this year, I want to encourage you as the year ends to pray and ask the Lord to show you specifically what he's calling you to give. You can go online and give. You can postmark your gift by the end of the year. But honestly, don't hear, oh, this is a preacher saying, oh, we just need tithes and offerings. For the life of your own soul and your faith, there's just no substitute for regular giving to actually grow in faith as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'd love to talk to you about my own journey and what the Lord has taught me about my own relationship with generosity and how I've seen the Lord time and time again when I grow in this area of my life, I always grow in faith, 100% of the time. And two, we'd be remiss in this story if I didn't give an invitation. It ends actually with Jesus saying, come follow me, come follow me. Although the rich young ruler rejects that invitation, I want you to know, actually, according to church history, the gospel writer Mark was considered the rich young ruler. There's many scholars, actually, that speculate that this rich young man went away from Jesus weeping, but at some moment he realized, I can't peel this skin off, I need a savior. There's many who believe. We know that John Mark was a wealthy man from the count in the book of Acts. His mother was incredibly wealthy. It's speculative, but what if? What if this rich young ruler woke up one day and realized, for all of my wealth, I'm actually bankrupt and I need a savior? I know that there's rich young rulers in our world that need Jesus because guess what, guys? Apart from Christ, that's me. That's me. I'm empty. I'm completely bankrupt apart from Jesus. I want to invite the worship team to come up and we're going to sing this morning a song declaring that we surrender. That we're going to yield our lives to Jesus. And I just want to invite you, if you're tuning in online, if you've never made that decision to come to follow Jesus, Don't walk away sad like the rich young ruler this morning. You can pray along with a prayer of faith, a simple prayer of faith that we're all going to be praying together this morning. So would you bow your head, bow your heart, and let's stand before the Lord together as a community of faith this morning. If you feel comfortable to stretch out your hands, close your eyes, I encourage you to do that. Father, we want to declare this morning, Lord, that you alone are good. And Lord, in a year that has been so hard and so difficult, you alone are the good that we need. You alone have the life. Lord, and we need you. We need the life that you can offer more than ever. May you fill us, Lord, with the treasure that moths don't steal and destroy. May you fill us, Lord, 
with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your life. We leave behind, Lord, the empty treasures we've been clinging to, looking to for life. And Lord, we surrender ourselves before you. Thank you, Lord, that you love broken, sinful people. You're rich in love, Lord, towards rich young rulers like us. We thank you, Lord, that your love is the greatest treasure of all. Teach us how to be rich in faith so that we might honor your son, Jesus, and the world might see the great treasure that we have in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.